Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run. All right, well, welcome to Over There, the podcast about military history and the age of Trump. My name is Terry Brennan. I'm an artistic director here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm Matt Martin. I'm a retired Air Force officer in uh, in the Dallas, Texas area. Correct. And uh, we're still, if you've been listening, uh, we haven't changed. Um, still the same people, even though we introduce ourselves <laughs> at the top of every show. I forgot to mention that this is about military history and activism in the age of Trump, because one of the big things we like to talk about, especially towards the end, is how we can try to undo some of the, yeah. or mitigate some of the damage. Mitigate. That's basically being done. That's what a good word. That's a, that's a good word. <laughs> Yeah, because I feel like it, I wish I could say that I was out there uh, turning the tide, but I really feel like it's just like, at least for the moment, it's just putting fingers in holes in the dam. It's a long, hard slog, as we say. Oh, is that what they say? Yeah, well, that's what is we that used like to a, say. Is that like an Air Force thing? That's that's like a military thing, right? Um, you know, Vietnam was a, was a slog. Uh, Iraq, when we finally realized it was going to take a long, long time, became a, a long, hard slog. Uh, this after is, this we is, announced that mission was accomplished. That's right. Long after that. <laughs> so there's a lot going on. There's uh, so much going on that I want to do a quick segment called What Just Happened? What Just Happened? That's exciting. I'm, I, I'm interested to know what just happened. Well, Matt, that's the segment. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Uh, what I wanted to address is that there are so many. That, so a lot of people complain about the news media. They're like, oh, the media, the media, the media. And they've been doing this for years. Um, and uh, there's a big complaint about the 24-hour news cycle that it it elevates things that are soap opera-ish and not worthy of our time. And simultaneously, it buries things that... Uh, are important and generally speaking most of this is not like purposeful it's not like the evil media doing things it's really the fact that if you want ratings you got to go with what people watch and what is exciting and in a lot of cases uh stupid yeah and more uh more detailed policy things tend to people start to change the channel so sensational uh, kind of wins the day sure. there are at least three things in the past two weeks probably closer to five but at least three that i remember hearing on the radio or seeing on the news or reading probably reading on my phone and being like now that is prime real estate for matt and i to talk about like that is like national security issues that is america in the world issues and uh-huh. i don't remember what they are because so <laughs> many other things of equal and sometimes not equal importance have just popped up yeah if if you're not if you're not taking notes every day you're just it's gonna the stuff is gonna be it's gonna wash away like tears and rain yeah right and i'm pretty good about keeping track of stuff like this like i'm one of those people that can hold lots of news stories and how they intersect in my brain there's a lot of other things that i cannot hold in my brain but i've always been very good at being like oh right right i can i can track the characters but this is even a lot for me and i think it's uh you know it's, it's hard to tell if it's like well i think some of it's intentional especially and we might get into a little bit especially with all this stuff about this memo from Devin Nunes. a lot of it i feel like is just like flooding the field with information that yeah. is not even terribly important in an attempt to just be like, what should I look at? Like, how many things can I keep in my head? Yeah. And, and but you also, know, this administration is just is just such a circus. The circus. That's another good word. It is a circus. It is a circus. Although I teach at a circus school. And let me tell you what, if any of my colleagues are listening right now, they hate when people <laughs> use the term circus to describe a situation that's totally out of control. You know, I guess that's true because a, a proper circus is is well coordinated, right? Everything's sort of planned out, and uh, uh, and somebody's in, right. You have a ringmaster that you have. Somebody's you in have charge <laughs> who has well, a good also, grasp of safety. Of is all the actually a really important thing in yeah. circus. Like it's the most important because you're doing things that could potentially kill you, and so that's the reason they get so mad. And I, I get it, <laughs> but like the illusion of the circus, right, is that you're like, oh my god, at any minute, someone here could be killed or maimed or horribly injured yeah but the the reality of it is it's usually under i say usually because there have been some outliers but it's usually very finely tuned very highly choreographed very under control but you know what that's not what it looks like from the audience and so i say this administration is a circus and uh i'm probably gonna get like demoted when i show up to work today but but you know i feel like there's there's lots of uh i mean you know we talked about this before that if you just 
if you compulsively read everything that comes across your Twitter feed, uh, you'll never, you know, you'll be overwhelmed by all this stuff. And and so we should focus on sort of the through lines, right? The 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 things that are going to help us in the long term and uh, ignore the noise. Yeah, and that's a tough one to do, right? Because noise can be uh, scary, and you're like, I better I better solve this problem immediately. But you're yeah. right; you have we have to focus on the things that are long term effective, or mm-hmm. I guess they're 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 important in the long term, and you have to keep your eyes on those. Otherwise, it, it is really easy to get lost in like the day to day distractions, and not even distractions, because I was saying that like sometimes it's a little bit like triage. Like you just there are multiple things happening, all of which might need to be attended to, but you do have to keep your wits about you and you need to decide which is the most important and which can wait because mm-hmm. you absolutely can't dive in with equal importance on every matter otherwise you'll get lost you'll give up and you'll, you'll throw your hands up in the air and be like whatever i don't even care what happens to my That's country right. like you just don't care yeah so well i have a yeah you, you wave your hands in the air and so uh, i have a quick thing so yeah i wanted to talk to you because so your tell me again um we've talked about this before but i always forget exactly your thesis in college was on nuclear stuff right wasn't that My, it? they were like and we have conferred upon you the degree of nuclear <laughs> stuff yeah when i was working on my master's degree at uh, at, at uh, university of denver uh, I've focused on this field called strategic studies, and uh, this was sort of on the heels. You know, I'd spent the, I'd spent the when I in 1995 uh, when I was a young lieutenant, uh, and the Bloodhound Gang was number one on the charts. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> I remember that. Um, you know, I I would spend my days 50 feet underground in a nuclear control center uh, in command of of 10 nuclear missiles and 100 warheads. And my job was to sit there and wait for the order to blow up the world. <laughs> so, so this, um, this was much on my mind and, uh, when I was working on my master's degree uh, uh, shortly thereafter. And so I wrote a, uh, a thesis on the, uh, on the aftermath of the, of the Cold War and the nuclear enterprise and the function that it would serve in in the post Cold War era, and uh, one of the things that becomes clear when you when you study this stuff is that you know during the Cold War and this huge nuclear buildup that we uh, that we embarked upon, where we built tens of thousands of weapons of all different varieties, uh, is that at some point it became more about the 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 establishment the um the the institution of control centers and bunkers and think tanks uh that controlled the nuclear enterprise rather than about any strategic advantage from adding a few more weapons uh what uh one of the famous a lot of folks out there will know who robert oppenheimer is he led the manhattan project that invented uh nuclear weapons during world war ii and um he had some thoughts about this in the 50s and one of the things he is famous for saying is that uh, uh, our 20,000th weapon cannot in any meaningful way offset their 2,000th weapon, except that it fulfills a role in the nuclear pipeline or something like that. I, I'm paraphrasing. But the idea is that the, the, the whole enterprise sort of became self-sustaining and that at a certain point it became more about keeping the the pipeline employed then it became about oh well we really need a couple more weapons because they they fulfill a very important uh strategic role in our defense right uh that's that's the gist of it and in in the cold war a lot of this these are after the cold war a lot of these institutions persisted not because we needed them but because we always had them Okay, so I have a quick, so to tag on to that, uh, one of the things that hit me in the news that I imagine you have some pretty detailed information about, um, Uh (laughs) maybe not the event itself, but like about like the, like what 
the whole situation is, was the fact that a bunch of people in Hawaii got a text message being like, incoming nuclear missiles take shelter. And for 38, I think it is, 38 minutes, which, I'll tell you what, man, 38 minutes, I teach kids, Uh and 38 minutes teaching children is a really long time. Like, I teach most of these kids for about an hour. But that's all to say that, like, that's a long time when I don't think my life is going to (laughs) end. Uh-huh. I can only imagine 38 minutes of yeah. being like in a bathtub, which it sounds like a lot of people like went to and or or hunkered down in, you know, under the um, like in the crawl space under their house, which sure. is, we all know is going to do zip, yeah. uh, hoping that like, oh, well, you know, you never know, like just not not knowing like that is an eternity. And terrifying, and and they and they they solved it, and it turns out that there's a a dude who was changing shifts, and he hit a button or something, which is not not horrifying because like obviously the hitting of the button didn't kill anybody, but still a little unnerving that like uh, a simple mistake could like cause me to like completely deep six everything I'm doing for the day and possibly say things that I totally regret for the rest of my life because I thought I was about to die. Yeah. But like it's it's unnerving to think that that could happen. They solved the problem. They sent an apology. But talk to me a little bit about you before we started recording and we yeah. were doing our usual like, hey, how you doing? What do you want to do? Right. You said that um, you, you said that you've got some information about kind of where this whole system came from. And yeah, I have a question. I mean, is it, is it, if you'd asked me three years ago, if we still need like an incoming nuclear missile system, I would have like rolled my (laughs) eyes and been like, absolutely not. Yeah. But oh, how the times they are changing. Uh, Talk to me about this system and uh, just kind of what the, I guess what the deal is. I didn't even, I didn't even know that was a thing. Like I didn't know I could get a text message being like, Terry, get in your bathtub. Yeah. In the 1950s, I'm going to go all the way back. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> who was the on stuff. the charts then. Probably the, probably the Beach Boys. Sure. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, when, we were, when we were faced with this, this really um, ominous threat of Soviet aggression and this idea that the Soviet Union could just start rolling tanks through the Fulda Gap in Germany and, and conquer Western Europe, uh, and, and we knew we couldn't stop them with conventional forces, uh, because our military was too small and, the, and theirs was too big, uh, we would we came, settled upon the idea that we would need to use nuclear weapons to to stop them, and that's how the arms race began. Uh, and we in the late fifties we started to realize that the the Soviets were also building lots and lots of nuclear weapons, and we were now vulnerable to strategic attack, and that uh, we could be really messed up by this, right? That that millions of Americans uh, could be killed by a, a Soviet strategic attack. And so there were a few folks who started to think of how we would respond to that, right? If, uh, if we had to escalate because the Soviets were invading Western Europe and we launched nuclear weapons and therefore they launched nuclear weapons, is there any way that we could protect the population? And Paul Revere was not available, so... <laughs> right. So this idea of civil defense uh, was born. And of course, they didn't have text messaging in those days. And so um, uh, they, st- they went around and started to put up air raid sirens uh, in every town, right? And a lot of small towns still have these things. Right? And if you're... And they... Uh, like, I remember growing up in Middlebury, Indiana, uh, there was an air raid siren uh, on the firehouse in the middle of town, and it went off at noon every day just to kind of test it. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> and when you heard that siren, you looked at your watch, and if it was noon, you said, oh, it's, it's, it's noon. And if it wasn't noon, then you knew, you presumed something was up. Now, normally they would use it for, like, tornadoes. Yeah, now, I was going to ask that because, so I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and, like, not far from me, like, six blocks, there was what we called the tornado siren. And mm-hmm. I assume that's the same thing because we only used it for tornadoes. And let me tell you, they used it a lot because we got a lot of tornadoes. Yeah. Now, in, in the in the 50s and 60s, that they used that for for everything, including the nuclear war is about to start. Get ready. And they had different tones, different um, different type of siren tones, uh, a wavering tone, a steady tone. And you were supposed to know what those different different siren tones meant and respond accordingly. Uh, and, and then, of course, we had this idea that uh, there's, there's two things at work here. Uh, one, just this naivete about the true power of nuclear weapons and uh, sort of a, a misguided idea that, well, if you had a little bit of warning, 
you could actually do something to protect yourself. And this, you know, I think a lot of people have seen the old films of duck and cover, right? Where, where kids were encouraged to get under their desk. <laughs> I've only seen the South park version of that. Yeah. Where they warn about a volcano erupting yeah. and they have to duck and cover. And sure enough, the volcano goes off and everyone ducks and covers and the lava just sweeps them away. Yeah, of course. Well, it, it's, I mean, that's, that's tongue in cheek, but it's, it's based on this equally absurd notion that, that if you hit under your desk, you would somehow be protected against a nuclear attack. Right? Uh, it was, uh, but and it. Can but I it, ask it you a question about that? And this yeah, is you, yeah. you, you probably don't have the answer. It's probably speculation. But um, is that this is what I suspect? Is that because it's more helpful psychologically to people to give yeah, them a thing it. to do than just be like, "Hey, wait around. Maybe you'll die. Maybe you won't." It, it's to to give you a thing to do. When this thing is going to happen, that makes you feel like you have some control. And it's also to, at the time, it was to uh, bolster, you know, in the 50s, uh, people still had a lot of faith in the U.S. government, right? They thought that the, that the government kind of knew what it was doing. And uh, this was to, so this, this civil defense plan was pushed by government officials as a way of sort of, you know, ass- uh, asserting people that, hey, we know, you know, we know what you should do. Here's what you should do. Get under your desk. (laughs) (laughs) We're the government. We know things. A giant wall of fire is no match for a wooden desk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot more going on than um, than uh, duck and cover. Uh, I've got a a pamphlet from 1962 uh, on my bookshelf here that explains the process by which you should uh, you can build a a nuclear fallout shelter in your basement. And it even go, you know, it, it shows you how to build it. It shows you how, you know, the dimensions you should build it and how you should provision it. Uh, but it also explains how you can take out a, a, um, a, a mortgage on your house to finance this nuclear bunker that you got to build. Well, this sounds like uh, it's a good thing. I didn't find this literature uh, right after Trump was um, elected because I had some yeah. some paranoid moments that I've been like, you know what I'll do? I'm going to build an anti-Trump bunker that no one knows is under my house. Yeah. And and, you know, in the in the 50s, banks were offering these lines of credit so you could go out and, and buy the, the supplies that you needed to build your your shelter. It was it was it was crazy. Well, I can tell you uh, that when I grew up in the 80s, I there was chit chat, right? Because I was. I was still, as I'm a year a little older than me, but like we both kind of were uh, growing up in the very end of the Cold War. So like this stuff wasn't really pressed a lot, but it still lived in the atmosphere, right? There was still like the Russians were a thing and and you know what, like nuclear war could happen and who knows. So there were a couple of, um, I don't know if I actually knew any families, but there was a family or two that I knew who had like a nuclear emergency plan and one of it did have to do with, or part of it had to do with canned goods uh yeah and uh, we had a lot of canned goods in my house and i think that that was a a leftover from that like we ate a lot of the canned goods but we did have like a special like deep (laughs) freezer and can Uh and you know it was kind of silly because if if nuclear war did burst out the canned goods we had would have lasted about at best at best two weeks but i'm guessing like a family of five like we're talking like a week three or four days something like that but that was a thing i remember that was a thing was like um being ready right it was not being ready it was something i heard more about at school than at home yeah uh yeah it was and it was it was an utterly absurd idea because there is just no um there there is no preparation right for that and we realized this. We came to realize this in 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 the late sixties, early seventies. It it sort of became obvious that you know there are there are tens of thousands of nuclear weapons on both sides, and if if the nuclear war were to break out, there would be no containing it, uh, and it would it would escalate into an all out nuclear conflict. Hundreds of millions of people would have been killed, and no amount of preparation was going to save you, right? Uh, in fact, there there's this this uh, phrase that was popular at the time that you know even if you manage to survive, uh, the the aftermath would be so horrific that the living would envy the dead. There was a show in I think that it aired uh, a miniseries that aired on NBC uh, in 1982, I think uh, 1983 maybe called The Day After. It depicted. You know, it was a miniseries that depicted what life would be like in America after the nuclear war. 
And it was it was terrible, right? And um, it was six nights of of um, a, an, a parade of horror on American television screens. Ronald Reagan watched that show, and uh, he was so emotionally affected by it that after that, you know, before that, he was he thought that we could build uh, Star Wars, uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, and defend ourselves against a Russian nuclear attack and. Uh, the phrase that he used when he announced this program in 1983 was uh, that we would render the Soviet threat impotent and obsolete uh, and that we could put up a nuclear shield over the country and protect ourselves from attack. Uh, after he watched the day after, uh, he was so emotionally affected by it that he began to seriously talk about reducing the nuclear arsenal, maybe even eliminating it. And uh, in 1986, when he went to the Reykjavik conference with Mikhail Gorbachev, they actually agreed in principle on the complete abolition of nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> it's astonishing, right? Uh, of course, it didn't happen because both leaders went back to their respective countries and said, hey, we want to get rid of nuclear weapons. And then the generals and the politicians and uh, the, 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 the defense planners patiently explained, well, actually, we can't do that because of many, many reasons. Uh, and it never happened, except that it kind of did. When the, when the wall came down, you know, there was a series of of nuclear treaties uh, that uh, cut the arsenals in half and then cut them in half again and then cut them in half a third time. And now today's arsenals are a fraction of what they were at the peak of the Cold War. Uh, but there's a long way of explaining the history of, of uh, civil defense and why there are these sort of lingering um, mechanisms like uh, the Hawaiian text messaging system that would warn you <laughs> of an incoming attack. Uh, it's it's based in these very antiquated notions. Well, and here's the other thing. If you were to get this text message mm -hmm. again, I'm going to go back to like two years ago, three years ago. My guess is you would look at it, be confused, may, maybe scared, like maybe like, yeah. oh, my God, what's this? But confused. And I imagine there would be a certain amount of the population that would, I don't know, call whoever puts this text message out or like people would be, I think, a little more on it to be like, whoa, 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 what's this? This there's there's no way this is a thing. Ah, yeah. The times have changed. And now <laughs> we live in a time where literally this happened and people were like, get in the bathtub. It's happening right. now because we've reached a state where where we really uh, believe that this is a possibility and mainly we believe it's a possibility not because a lot has changed say on I don't know the international stage or yeah I mean you right. know what I mean by that what's changed There's is the way our president is taken to poking the hornet's nest of North Korea like North Korea has yeah. always been unstable and we've worried about North Korea since the Clinton years it's always been like a thing and I remember when we went into Iraq I remember thinking um, we should not be going into Iraq Iraq. And I remember saying to somebody, I mean, if we're going to go in anywhere because of like weapons problems, I was like, North Korea is probably at the top <laughs> of that list. And I was like, but I don't think that's a good idea either. But my, my point is, is this is not a new threat, right? The, the, the newness, the, the new part of this is um, the fact that we have a president who doesn't really seem to comprehend the danger of um, essentially like schoolyard escalation where, you know, he's like, oh, just, just, just it's just very childish. But unfortunately, because of this very childish behavior, people get a text and they're like, oh, this is real. Like we've been we've been kind of worried about this. It's happening now. Yeah, it sort of underlines the point that the system that we've put in place relies on the credibility of human beings and their judgment. Right. And when their judgment is in question, the stability of this system is also in question. We've talked many times on this podcast about how there's still the structure in place and the idea that Donald Trump is just going to casually launch a nuclear war with with no reason is is pretty far-fetched. He'd have a really hard time doing that. Likewise, the idea that Kim Jong-un is just going to start launching nuclear weapons is also pretty far-fetched uh, because he knows that that would lead immediately to the complete annihilation of his country and himself included. And he doesn't want that, right? He wants to stay in power. And alive. He'd like to stay alive. He definitely would like to stay alive, right? So, you know... But this is so it's really important though to note, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot in a second. But it's uh, it's important to note though that while what you're saying is absolutely 100 percent true, to go back to the news cycle and the uh, sort of like 
heightened state that we all live in right now, it is is very easy when something like that happens to be like, oh, a misstep has finally been made. Yeah. And I am now in direct, like in the, in literally, I am now in the line of fire yeah. in this, uh, in this, in this emergency. Now I want to say uh, two things. One of it is, is I, I, this is, uh, I, someone told me this, I did not read this, so I don't know how, I don't know where they read it. I don't know how, how accurate this is, but I did hear that, uh, Donald Trump was informed about the text message that went out and he just yeah. continued to play golf. Uh, that's what I, sure. I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, there's nothing that I've seen in this president to make me believe that he would be like, Oh, I care about other people. Let's get on this. And also I want to use this moment as a, a pivot to something you and I were talking about, which is that recently, in the North, I almost said North Carolina, in the North Korea uh, debacle. So we have recently put up a new ambassador to South Korea. And in the in the interest of this whole like North Korea escalation thing, yeah. it's important to note that. So uh, let me I've got it right here because I, I read this and then I, it was one of the things I forgot about. And I went and like dug it up. It is. So we we put up a gentleman named Victor Cha and he's uh, apparently one of America's most respected North Korea experts and he's also a right winger and he's kind of a hawkish right winger. Anyway he was recently pulled as ambassador and he was pulled as ambassador because of the fact that and I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch some of this to you and just I'm curious on your opinion on this because it deals with HR uh, McMaster who we've talked about before on this podcast. But he uh, he basically the he he told the administration there was talks of like doing what they call a bloody nose strike, which I assume is just like instead of like a full on assault, it's like we're gonna demonstrate through a smaller military strike that we got it, we could do it. You know, like a bully on the playground. You're like, yo, I'm not yeah. gonna break your arm, but I might might slap you in the face and give you a. Bloody knows. Victor Cha was like, that is a terrible plan. It's a terrible yeah. plan <clears throat> with someone as insecure as Kim Jong-il. He will absolutely... Did, wait, did I say Kim Sometimes yeah. I get him and his dad mixed up, but that is Kim, <laughs> Kim Jong-un. Jong-un. Yeah, Man, I, I'm not doing so well today. So, uh, anyway, my point though is that Kim Jong Un, someone as insecure as that, might actually just full on retaliate to to prove that they also got it. Yeah. And when he said this is a bad idea, uh, shortly afterwards, Cha's withdrawal, um, the, the, he was basically pulled. They were like, "Well, maybe we want someone else who's willing to toe the line with us." In the one or two reports I've read, this is uh, these bloody nose strikes are things that HR McMaster is kind of floating. That's what I've heard. I don't know if he's pushing for them or floating them, but Donald Trump is like, I dig it. I like using tanks or whatever. He's really into <laughs> right. using the military. He uh, famously said, why do we have nuclear weapons if we don't use them? And I don't know how that did not keep him from being like, I, I literally thought, of course, didn't we all think every time he said something, I'm like, that's the one. That's right. the one. Like, I yeah. really thought that like the uh, Access Hollywood tape was it. But I really did think it was uh, the nuclear weapons one was, was like, that's a that's a dinger. I think he's not going to climb out of that one. But my point is, though, this guy really believes in escalation. And this has the implications of this, whether I've read that whether uh, so some people say, oh, no, war is imminent, because if they're going to replace this hard right guy who's kind of a hawk because he's not hawkish enough, that means they're legitimately considering strikes. And then there's others who say, well. It, it doesn't mean war is imminent. It doesn't mean that. But it is still troubling to know that we're still floating around the idea of poking the hornet's nest even more. Yeah. Now, I don't have a um, a we're, we're going off of uh, we're going off of like media reports. So I don't know what the sources are. Basically, what I'm saying is like we don't know exactly what H.R. McMaster is saying and this and that. We can still trust that most of this is probably correct, but we don't know the the gritty details and I don't have a background in strategy, but I'm curious on your opinion on this. Is this something I don't want to say that I need to be worried about because we all know that if you say that I need to be worried that the next time we come back, I'm like, Matt, I have developed the best plan. It involves a jetpack, a vest full of nails uh-huh. and uh, a lot of sedatives. But my point is that um, uh-huh. without like spinning out into paranoia, though, is it something to be a little bit concerned about or let, let's start here. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting carried away. Is this good? Let's pretend this is yeah. all real. Let's pretend that we can trust all this right. is this good strategy or bad strategy the, the the concept of a bloody nose strike to send a message right Correct. yeah sorry i got really wrapped up there let's clear this up yeah is a bloody <laughs> nose strike is this a good strategy or bad strategy no no it's a terrible strategy right because it relies on the the idea 
that you can communicate something clearly through the use of force. Uh, and this is an idea that we have in that, that's kind of popular in, in American culture and that if you are tough and employ selective acts of violence, that you can make your adversary very clearly understand what your intentions are. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. And if you study the history of, of warfare at all, you realize that, you know, all wars uh, result because the two sides fundamentally misunderstand each other. Uh, and the more you escalate, the more that misunderstanding proliferates, right? Uh, and it leads to things like Vietnam that, or, or Afghanistan that drag on for year after year, decade after decade sometimes, uh, because the two sides are trying to use force to communicate their intent to each other instead of diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy is hard, uh, but, it, uh, but words are better than bombs uh, when you're trying to communicate. Uh, so if we were to launch this bloody nose strike... You know, how do we know uh, that Kim Jong-un would would realize that it's just a message and not the opening salvo of a larger attack? Right. And if if he thinks it's the first strike in a in a large campaign, then he realizes he's vulnerable and he needs to strike back with the weapons that he has before those weapons don't exist anymore. So let me just jump in really quick. So because that is yeah. it's funny you say that. That is something I didn't consider. So what you're telling me is that in communicating an idea mm -hmm. via violence, yeah. what we're trying to say is like, hey man, this is a one-off, but it could be worse. And the message they might yeah. get is, what up? This is the beginning. Right. That didn't we're even just getting started. That did not <laughs> even occur to me. I was like, yeah. and a lot of bad things did occur to me when I thought about this strike. Yeah, so it's a, it's a terrible idea. And Mattis understands this. I know deep down inside, McMaster understands this as well. It's hard to explain why he's suddenly in favor of this very confrontational approach other than he works for the president and he feels like he has to uh, has to represent the, the president's viewpoint on this. Uh, but these guys know this and uh, I think they would be very reluctant to actually do that, uh, at least not without... Uh, really making it clear to the president that they think this is a very, very bad idea. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 a thing for sure. So I want to uh, I'm going to I'm going to introduce a new segment right now called Total hmm. Speculation. Um, <laughs> it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, well, so I recently finished reading um, listening on audiobook, really, uh, uh -huh. the, to Fire and Fury. And oh, yeah. And uh, I would say a lot of people were like, well, you know, you have to take into account a guy's kind of a tabloid writer and it reads like a tabloid. I was like, ooh, very juicy. Uh, so obviously you, you can't take everything in the book to heart to heart. Like it, it is written with um, a certain amount of uh, soap opera flair because it's not so much like the like if you're reading like the New York Times or the Washington Post where they tend to be a little bit uh, surgical and um, borderline like you're like, ah, oh, I mean, I, I know stuff now, but I did I feel like I didn't really get any catharsis out of it. I'm almost worse off than before I read it, but at least I know this is very much like it talks about people's intentions and all sorts of things that like one would have to speculate. You know, you, you, you never really truly know another person's intentions unless they say out loud, my intention is. One of the things they did talk about is that apparently uh, Donald Trump uh, and H.R. McMaster have a pretty strained relationship, as in, like, Donald Trump doesn't like H.R. McMaster because he comes in with uh, graphs and charts and, and tries to teach him <laughs> stuff. And apparently Donald Trump doesn't want that. He gets very mad. He thinks that, uh, what's his name, that McMaster's kind of an egghead, and that drives him nuts. I just wonder, because we see this... We've seen this with a number of officials. We haven't really seen this too much with Mattis, but you see it feels like almost like a wearing down of the people who work in the White House of, on yeah. all sides. And people are, you know, they're constantly leaving. And I guess the White House is a high stress place anyway. Most people only work there for a couple of years. Um, it's pretty rare that people stay on the whole time, mainly because it's just such a high stress environment. But apparently this White House is even worse. Yeah. So in this new segment called Total Speculation, making this up as we go along, <laughs> but could that be a like if you're dealing with a person who just keeps demanding, they keep demanding these big things like, why don't we just kill the guy? Why don't we just drop a bomb? Is it yeah. is it fair to say that possibly just to get the person to calm down or shut up a little bit that maybe you're like, well, we could do these little things and you don't yeah. really intend to do them. But like you offer it up as like, well, if, if this will keep you happy maybe i'll say 
this is that a do you I mean again this is again we're like reaching into someone's head who we've never met but like is that a potential because it sounds like you don't believe that someone like McMaster really believes this is a good strategy based on sure things he said in the past you're right that that is a thing and that in military planning that is a routine thing right uh you normally when I was working at a headquarters staff and I had to get a decision out of a general uh, you know, I would put together a briefing uh, and then I would offer up uh, three courses of action, COAs, we called them, right? The COA that I wanted the general to pick was always COA number two. <laughs> so COA, num- <laughs> COA number one was always on the side of, aired on the side of not doing very much, right? Uh, COA number two was always the balanced approach to whatever we wanted to do and, and what the staff generally uh, with the staff consensus on, uh, on the correct course of action was. And co three was like the extreme thing. Right. And so you would, you would, you know, you, you would make the, you would present these to the general, make the general feel like he or she is, is applying their military judgment, but really giving them only one thing to choose from. Right. So that, that could very well be what's going on. You know, if we're spec, if we're completely speculating, yeah, uh, that could very totally well be making this up and just trying to imagine <laughs> what we would do if we were in this situation that we have very little information about. Well, so, OK, so that's that's interesting um, that you say that you did did I, out of curiosity, did did putting number two usually work? Oh, yeah, it was it was they picked it every time. <laughs> <laughs> You're like slam dunk. Yeah. <laughs> and no one ever figured. Was it transparent where people are like, clearly, clearly Martin wants me to do X, Y or Z? <laughs> Or, or uh, some, sometimes clean, so, so, so sometimes it was like clearly that's your plan yeah right? i mean you 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 get to know you know you work with a, a particular general over the course of a couple of years you get to know them pretty well you get to know how they think and so you you can frame these things in in such a way that you're 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 not taking them anywhere they don't already want to go uh and of course you know the generals tend to be pretty smart right that's why they become generals and so they, they probably would have that's probably what they would have picked if you would not offer them any colas uh, but yeah, it was sometimes it was pretty obvious that, uh, <laughs> hey, general, this is this is the one we want you to pick. <laughs> <laughs> you were telling me that you were in Europe recently. I was, by the way, yeah. it was cold in Philadelphia while you're in Europe. So I hope you had a great time. Um, <laughs> I did have like two days of like of 60 degree weather, which are unseasonal and I shouldn't be happy about. But I hate the cold so much that I was like willing to grin and bear it. Uh, but yeah, while you were in Europe, uh, doing cosmopolitan things, I was taking the subway in the cold. So I'm Uh happy to hear that you had a great week. Uh, but you were telling me that you were talking to some people in Europe and the chit chat over there among, was it military leaders or just people who run in similar circles that you do where it's like consulting and military adjacent like circles? No, I, I was at a, a conference, uh, devoted to this uh, subject called geospatial intelligence, uh, which is uh, the art and science of how you use maps and imagery and geographic data to figure things out about your adversary and about your operations. That sounds like a party. That sounds like, <laughs> yeah, a, it was, it was sounds pretty, like a pretty exciting. <laughs> That's right. Maps, maps, uh, but, maps, 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 maps. So, all right, but they're doing some pretty bit. amazing things with maps these days. Well, actually, that's to be honest, I, I, I might come across like a jerk, but that is true. Um, to be honest, yeah. like the 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 mapping software and like GPS software and like just oh, yeah. the, just the accuracy of which I can like find things out in my daily life is pretty amazing. So I imagine I imagine that you're like, listen, uh, we've mapped this dude's body. He doesn't even know it. Um, it's, but I imagine it's pretty sophisticated. So you were out there talking, and so this is mainly for you're saying strategic purposes. It was a conference to talk about, um, you know, how you can use these this data and these tools to make decisions, and uh, you know, there's always a lot of guest speakers at these types of conferences, and so a lot of them were these senior. Uh, European defense officials, generals, as well as civilian leaders, uh, and they they speak to the crowd, and the crowd is mostly uh, uh, defense industry people to talk about. Hey, this is what we're trying to do. Uh, but I did get a chance to uh, to have some discussions with some of these very senior uh, European defense officials, uh, and it was at the same time that the Davos conference was going on. Oh, see, there's something I forgot about. Yeah. That was one of the things. That was that was definitely one of the things. And I know that that that, that uh, people, you know, when they see these European leaders, uh, you know, sort of 
especially at Davos, they were like they Trump was not seriously challenged by anybody when he was over there, right? All of these these heads of state, uh, these these uh, financiers, these these very wealthy people, as well as these government officials, were kind of fawning all over him, right? And um, and people, I I know that's probably frustrating for a lot of people because they're thinking, how can these you know how come these people can't stand up to? Don't they see? Right, they're European smart people. Can't they see? Uh, why are they? Why are they propping him up so much? Right? I have a quick question before you go on. Yeah. Do you think that is that they're kowtowing to Trump, or do you think they're kowtowing to Trump because of the fact that Trump is the American president? That's it. That's it. So, so this, and I had some discussions, some some discussions with uh, these defense officials, and they they echo this, right? And that is, you know, the United States is is a very, very important country, right? Uh, we, are in, we are essential to global stability, regardless of who our president is. And so uh, structurally, right? Not because of the personalities of our leaders, but because it's baked into the cake of, of the global order, right? So, uh, in tra- some ways, it's almost like the global deep state. It's kind of like the global deep state, and it's all these structures that we erected after World War II uh, to make sure that a world war doesn't happen again, right? So the UN, NATO, uh, glo- all these global finance, all these trade deals, uh, all these different treaties, uh, how the rule of law applies on the high seas, international air traffic, and and the international institutions that make all of these things happen, uh, of which the United St- States provides the essential capabilities and is the essential pillar. And so they have to be nice to the president of the United States uh, because they can't afford to for the, the U.S. to just withdraw from the world stage. The, the, not only would the world become just a lot more unstable and something like World War III could, could happen, but it would wreck the foundation of this global proster- prosperity that most of these Western European countries enjoy, right? So, so they're, they're not being uh, uh, cowardly. They're being kind of, uh, kind of brave when they, because they're going to face political heat at, at, at home to stand up to Donald Trump because lots of Europeans don't like him. But they know that they have to uh, if they care about what happens to their country. So I have a quick question. Okay, that, and that actually is funny. That's a more detailed answer than I, I suspected something like that. But I, I kind of often forget, and you do a great job of reminding me, I kind of often forget that like a big part of like the position of the United States uh, right now contemporarily is really built on the idea of coming out of World War II and, and everyone being yeah. like, uh, yeah, we can't do that ever again. Like we thought <laughs> we thought we made it through that first one. And really, there was yeah. just a brief pause before the second one started. I know yeah. a number of. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the theory. It's not a. It's not an obscure theory. The idea that like World War One and World War Two are actually just the same war with like a, a brief respite. Right, um, a recess. Yeah, and and it was because of the fact that like everyone was like when we got done, everyone was like, "How dare you, Germany? How dare yeah. you?" And then we kicked them to the ground, and so right. there was a lot of like national resentment, which also which just fueled the second uh, world war. It's a little more complicated yeah. than that, but like that's, the, that's sure. the the running theory is that which is why we spent all that money rebuilding Germany and rebuilding sure. Europe to be like, look, we just we just want everyone to live and not sort of like like dwell and wait for the next big one. Like we just want, let's let's see what we can do. But I have a quick question because now I know. Okay, I'm I'm about to I'm about to throw some things out there, and I know uh-huh. that I know that we live in a time currently globally. That's a, an important one to say. Globally in a in a time where there is probably the least amount of violence that there ever has been. Um, which sounds yeah. when I say that to people, it blows their minds because it, it blows fe- their mind because it feels like yet, the world's a pretty violent place. Right, and yet it's true. And yet it's true. So I have a question, though, because uh, when you bring up this whole like, well, post-World War II, I'm like, yeah, actually, when you think about it, like we've done a pretty great job of sustaining a certain amount of like peace, international trade, like like no major hot wars 
yeah. between European countries and the Soviet Union. But how does this post-World War II order apply to, say, a place like the Middle East? Like, and is it equitable? And I don't mean that in like a, I don't, I don't mean that in like a, like I'm trying to like throw sand in the gears or anything like that. Yeah. But it feels like, it, it feels like that a lot of the, not all, I mean, there's a lot of violence everywhere. There's plenty of violence in South America too. But the, the point is that like, we have kind of established this world order that that is sort of that the purpose is like we don't want any big blow up escalations we don't want another world war ii we don't want nuclear sort of like holocaust essentially but in that have we sort of tipped our hat to the players who are economically a little stronger but also basically they're like so you got nukes you can play at the table because we want to make sure that this doesn't happen and people who are like so you don't have nukes or you just don't have maybe uh, an army that really worries us about like global problems because there's there's nukes in the middle east we have what, what uh india and um india and pakistan thank you. i was like yes. who's the who's the country that they're constantly pointing their their nukes at yeah. so we do have this but like is it is 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 it equitable that's really i think a bigger one because i sometimes think about that because we've done a great job of keeping like another world war ii happening across europe but we have like syria right now and we have a lot of problems in the middle east where uh countries uh have no problems exacting some pretty awful violence and is that because we're not involved or is it because i mean i know that a lot of those countries would not be thrilled if we decided we were involved like what are the that might be a large question here yeah what's coming to the end of the podcast but what what's your take on that? Like like if we're this big uh, pillar, and I believe you, we are this big pillar. But are we are are we using this? I guess influence equitably. Sure. Okay. So so a couple of things, and there there are things that are sort of that are opposed to each other. Uh, on the always, one hand, right? that's the problem. As with, always, with global politics is that like it's kind of it's it's a complicated thing. It's kind of complicated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, on the one hand, uh, yeah, you you are you're absolutely right. Uh, we are living in the most peaceful, most stable time in human history. In the 13,000 years of, of human recorded history, uh, we have things have never it has never been better to be a human being on planet Earth than now. Uh, and there's a, a scholars who have documented this very well. Uh, Steven Pinker, the famous linguist in his book, Better Angels, uh, documents the, the sharp decline in, in violence of all types uh, over the last 50 years. Uh, there's a British economist by the name of Max Rosen uh, who documents the, the how if you objectively measure the quality of life of human beings, you see this very uh, almost hockey puck like graph of increasing prosperity uh you know people wonder what world what world peace looks like this is what right now is what world peace looks like right there's a few pockets of instability where regional conflicts sort of fester uh but on the whole the average human being on earth has never been in a war and will never be in a war and we'll never know anybody who's in a war uh and that's i mean that's incredible it's astonishing uh it boggles my mind every day on the other hand, there is no question that the men, and they were almost all men, who built this global order after World War II were racists, were culturally uh, ethnocentric, uh, who thought that the Western Europeans were superior, and that's the foundation of this global order. And those things are also kind of, that inequity is kind of baked into the cake. And for for decades, um, we, you know, the United States, but other other Western powers went around propping up dictators uh, in the name of stability without much thought about the impact on the lives of the individuals who lived under those dictatorships. Right. Mubarak in Egypt. Uh, you know, there was a time when we were propping up Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, and that's part of it, too. Right. And so one doesn't excuse the other. But at the same time, uh, you know, the idea of just letting the whole thing unravel while attractive would be very, very bad for everybody. So it brings us back to the central thesis of, you know, this podcast, which is that, uh, you know, sure, Trump is terrible (laughs) and and every day. Every day things happen that are outrageous. um, But if we want life on earth to be better for human beings, then 
We have to focus on the, the things that contribute towards structural stability. And in the United States, those things are controlled by Congress uh, and the budgetary process and laws and boring things. And if you really want to make a difference, you got to get your representatives into Congress and um, uh, and not be fixated on Trump's tweets. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, definitely need to, boy. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I'm not, um, I'm not on Twitter all that much. And I'm actually not, I only read the tweets that make the news. Like I'm not, I know some uh-huh. people who like read the tweets and I also worry yeah. about their, um, declining mental health, but, uh, in the sense that like they just grow more and more anxious all the time. And I'm like, you gotta, I mean, like uh, that's, you, you got, you gotta like, you gotta regulate. But yeah. my question though is, well, so we have this, we have this, um, stability that, that has been built and it's been built with, as you were saying, a certain amount of ethnocentrism and a certain amount of like, sounds like disregard for certain parts of the world. Yeah. Is there a way is, is there a way to, so there's, there's probably two things on the table then if someone's like, well, I want to solve this problem. And one, as you mentioned, is being like, let's take the whole thing apart and start over. Right. Which can be scary yeah. because you're like, cool. Um, the good news is, uh, we'll probably have a better system. The bad news is when, and who's going to get killed in the meantime. Yeah. Uh, but the, and the other one is like to work in these other countries and, and areas, specifically the Middle East Africa and Latin America. Um, uh-huh. Latin America is one that like, even though I didn't start thinking about is one that like, I really feel like being so close to home and is, it, it's almost like we've, I shouldn't say I was about to say, it's almost like we've let these things happen, but in some cases there's a documentation that we've like helped fuel coups and things like that. But in, in all again, in the, in the um, name of stability, for ourselves but is there a way to bring these people to the table is there a way to like to kind of open it up because i i will say that like i like what you had to say like i know that i've never seen a war right i mean like i've there there've been wars since i've been alive but there're wars that like you know i i've never been concerned about like well if this offensive doesn't go well yeah. i might have to move that's never right. been a thing. Although when Trump was elected, I definitely was like, here's some places I'm thinking about moving. But uh, but I've, that's never and I used to say this like before Trump, when people would complain about um, what I thought were trivial problems, I would say you live in the United States. You don't need to worry about tanks rolling down the street in a month. You don't that's need right. to worry about another army coming in and deciding like, you know what? We're going to cut off everybody's right hand just to kind of prove a point. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, because I've seen news reports of horrible things that happened in places like South America and Africa, and I was like, you don't have to worry about that. And and it's true, we don't have to worry about that, and that's a that's a positive thing. But the problem is, is that I had a state of reference. I don't, I could, I could reference check this out in other parts of the world. There's this thing that happens, uh-huh. and in some cases, it's um, you know, when we were fighting the communists in South America, you'd yeah. have these guerrilla forces who would roll into these communist compounds and they would pretty much kill everybody there but the problem was is that half of the people there were being held prisoner by the communists so imagine that i've been taken prisoner by a communist and i'm like finally liberation and then i get shot Uh yeah um and these are things that we kind of were like well you know communism is bad and there's i guess there's going to be collateral damage is there a way to bring some of these other nations to the table in a meaningful way clearly that's not going to happen under this administration but what are some structural things like let's pretend that we get uh, our dream team of a congress like uh-huh. what are some strategy wise like like just like we were talking about with north korea earlier what good and bad strategies what are some do we know of any good strategies sure. to bring these uh, other continents and countries to the table yes so so there are agencies uh institutions and structures uh in place that work for that stuff and that the United States contributes to, right? One of them is the UN, uh, uh, UNESCO, the Economic and Social Council that goes around and does aid work, but they also help young countries in Africa, uh, in Asia that don't have a great track record of stability uh, or have a lot of institutional ability to do things like protect, you know, endangered species in 
different areas or to provide foundation for economic growth in their country, lift people out of poverty, etc. Uh, agencies like UNESCO, agencies like USAID uh, do that, right? They help these these countries do that. And they don't do it like as a charity. They do it as a government institution that helps figure out how to finance aid work, how to prop up economies that are not functioning so that people can actually get jobs and and provide for themselves, right? Uh, and the United States contributes to that monetarily. We contribute that to contribute to that with diplomats. We contribute to that with aid workers, with material support. Uh, the U.S. military actually does a lot of this in in different parts of the world, in Africa in particular. Africa Command, U.S. Africom, supports that, right? There's another agency that is part of the Department of State Defense uh, Security Cooperation Agency that helps. Countries that have latent terrorist issues like Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab helps them figure out how to defend themselves, right? Uh, And helps them materially and gives them capabilities and then training, right? And these, these are activities that the U.S. government participates in that Congress has to allocate funding. And so when uh, Rex Tillerson dismantles the State Department and makes it harder for the U.S. government to support these things, that's bad. And so your congressional representatives, to a large extent, have held the line against this by by continuing to allocate funding for the State Department that they then have to do because when when the Congress passes a budget, that's actually a law. And and they're saying you have to spend money on these things, even if Rex Tillerson wants to dismantle the State Department, he has to still execute those functions. Right. And so there's only so much he can do. Uh, those are the things that you should be uh, making sure your congressional representatives keep doing. So the big part and I know we always kind of come back to this, but it, it's, it's, you know, like we were saying, you have to focus on the big things and let some of the littler things go, especially things like tweets or stupid things the president says. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, right now, so strategy wise, the focus really needs to be on 2018, right? The first big yeah. step we can take. And it's, it is really important, I think. It's, I think it's easy. So now now we're in a place where Trump has had like a, a so-so first year. And I say so-so because even though I thought it was a disaster and, and most people who share the same political views you and I do see it as a disaster, um, yeah. he still holds like 80% like approval rating from Republicans or something like that. Yeah. And, and right wing media is definitely um, going to keep trumpeting him. But and, and so there's not a lot we can do there. But the the point is, is he's had a, a so-so year. It's 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 been a pretty bad one, but he's he's still being propped up by certain propaganda machines and certain uh, elements of his base. And so the big one is 2018. Right. The big one is it's easy to get distracted uh, not distracted, but it's easy to be like any old non-Trump person is, <laughs> uh-huh. is, is going to do right. Anybody, you can, we'll say a generic Democrat. That's what they talk about in the yeah. So generic yeah. Democrat beats a uh, the the incumbents currently and all this other stuff. And and I, you know, I'm I'm a Democrat, so I'm I'm big on like yeah. But there is a little bit of uh, we we need to stay alert. And we don't you don't want generic Democrats like you want to make sure that in your area you are absolutely (laughs) hopefully there's a a primary process. And you really so these things we talk about, right, especially stuff like social justice. And we're talking about things like what are ways that we can, you know, open up the the United Nations to to some of these other countries. I mean, not that they're not a part of it, but you know what I mean? You want to make sure that you're vetting your congressional uh, sort of your Senate or your congressional candidates. You don't want to just be like, great, they got a D. Wonderful. You have yeah. my vote. There's a large part of the population that will do that, and there's only so much we can do about that. But we want to yeah. make sure that in, primaries are important, and vetting your candidate is really important. Getting a good yes. candidate in there is important, because if you get a bad candidate in there, and by bad, I just mean someone who's like kind of towing the line but not making any meaningful change, it's hard to challenge that person from your party. It's not impossible, but then it, you bust into like democratic civil war and that's very difficult. That's why we have primaries. Yeah. So make sure that you're really, if, if the things that uh, we're talking about really matter, make sure that you're actually, you know, it's tough, right? You can't, you can't probably be like up all up in it, but you can at least be informed and be and find like the three to five things that are very important, especially dealing with equity 
uh, and equitability in is equitability a word? Sure. In society, like making sure that we are made instead of just saying like, sure, I'll take any old guy with the D. Make sure that you're really looking at me like these are important. Does this person? Oh yeah. Represent these qualities. We're entering this primary season, right? And this is this is super important. And it doesn't it doesn't take much, you know. I've been going to somebody's candidate forums, and in the districts in the district I'm in, and the districts immediately surrounding. Uh, you know, there are three or four people who are trying to run to get the Democratic nomination, and uh, they they have different opinions on on different things. And I've seen them go to these candidate forums, and I've seen some of these candidates get booed when they start talking about uh, what their approach is going to be. And then the next time I see them at a candidate forum, they have changed that their their views. Right? That is really important. Like, I think that sometimes we're just like, oh, yeah. like I think people throw their hands up before they even go, and they're like, uh oh. They're all entrenched. Yeah. And that's not entirely untrue, but there's a you can untrench them, especially in the primaries. You can. Like the primaries Doesn't take, are just a go, really good time for this. Just go to the forums and and let them know what you, you know, ask them the questions about the things that you care about. Uh, and then let them know how you how you feel, right? Uh, if uh, about what they think, and I think you, you're going to be and surprised. This is the time to do that. So the the problem that happens, and then we we probably have to to wrap up here pretty soon. The problem that happens yeah. is that people wait until the generals to to bring all this up, and by then yeah. it's kind of a lost cause. Um, and and I don't mean to say that in a way that that sounds uh, what's the word I'm looking for. I don't want to like undermine or sort of like minimize people's concerns. I don't want to be like that's not a concern. But by the time you get to R versus D, your chance to make these meaningful changes inside of your own party have kind of flown the coop. Now it's like, well, do you want someone who stands for a lot of things you don't stand for or some people who stand for a few things that you don't stand for? And I would prefer not to have to make that decision, right? I would prefer to be like, I'm very excited about this candidate and what they want to do. But the problem is, is that primaries don't get a lot of coverage. And that goes back to our news media thing, right? It's so rare that that primaries get a lot of coverage because they're kind of boring. But that's that's up to us to do the work. We kind of have to go and find out about who these candidates are. And, And let me tell you what, you don't like you can follow people like me and Matt, like I put out some stuff on my social my personal social media stuff. And um, I know that uh, I know a number of other people in my circle do. You can always, there's always somebody in your circle who's big yeah. into this policy stuff that makes you want to fall asleep. And I get it. I'm not here to say like, guys, if you just got excited, um, it's not going to, it's not going to do it for everybody, but you can stay informed by following people who will break it down for you. And that's yeah. important because yeah. primaries are where you create good candidates. And you're right. Like, like if I was running a primary and I said a thing and I was like, well, guys, here's what I want. I got booed. I really would probably come back and be like, if I want to win this election, I probably have to pivot on this. And <laughs> Right. If I want to win, win this primary, and get the nomination. I, I gotta, I gotta get applause at these things instead of yeah. booze. So, yeah. so let me uh, let, let's uh, let's let's turn. The, so, one of the places you can get this information, right, is from us. Now, we don't post a lot on Twitter. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't. We, we, we should, should probably post more. I'm gonna I'm gonna give yeah, out maybe our, we our general stuff. Like you can find us on Twitter, right? We are twitter.com uh, backslash yeah. over their pod right okay uh-huh. see there's there's one or two that don't have the pod in there you can also find us uh we have a gmail account right we do this is a mess i should write this down and have it in front of me <laughs> this is not that hard to write down our handles so we're yeah we're over their pod at gmail.com you can find us on twitter uh-huh. you can find us on facebook at over there pod is it is that the one that has official attached it's, to it it's a official colon over there, the over there podcast. No one's going to be able to find us because they're like, hold on, I got to listen to this seven more times. Uh, <laughs> if you, but honestly, like over there pod is is where you're going to find us. Twitter over there pod, uh, Gmail over there pod at gmail.com. Yeah. You can find us Facebook official colon over there pod. You know why that is? There's another uh, podcast called Over There and it's about traveling. Ah. I found that out like two weeks ago. That's <laughs> is why, that it? That's why we got yeah, and and they didn't bother to grab the Twitter handle. Or uh, anything else, but they did grab the Facebook handle. That's why we are I official see. colon over there pod. Nice. I was trying to figure that out. And uh, and, uh, and in a first, I don't usually do this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out there because of the fact that I put up a daily call every day. And granted, most of my calls, not all of them, but some of them are Pennsylvania related. Um, I yeah. don't really put it out there that much, but a lot of them are national. You can find me personally on Facebook, facebook.com backslash 
Terrence, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E, M is in Michael, Brennan, B-R-E-N-N-A-N. Because if you are interested in this stuff, I, there's a, I put out a thing every morning. In fact, after I finish this, I'm going to put today's out. Today, just for context, is uh, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, in a very exciting decision, oh, ruled against the current voting map. They said it's overly gerrymandered. It was rigged uh-huh. to give Republicans a very unfair political advantage. And... Uh, they said that um, so they have to the Republicans have to turn over the map and it has to be redrawn. I think after this next election, they were they were a little bit generous in being like, we're not going to jack your election up. But that being said, like this map needs to be drawn statutory. And uh, wait, that's not a word. Sorry, that's a uh, stat stat. I always do that. But I'm saying. But here's the thing. The Republican leadership in state legislation in Pennsylvania have decided they are not going to comply with the Supreme Court. So Uh today I'm going to put out a call with the phone numbers of the two party bosses and we're going to call in case anybody in here is from Pennsylvania. Here are the numbers. You can call uh, Congressman Scarnati at 717-787-7084. Again, this is just Pennsylvania. If you're not from Pennsylvania, don't call these numbers. Or you can call Representative (laughs) Corman at 717-787-1377. But this is important, right? Because we just had a big Supreme Court decision, and then we have politicians who are like, I don't feel like adhering to this ruling because it doesn't serve me. So again, this is is where the work is, right? It's in calling. I don't know who I'm going to talk to, but it's going to be kind of boring. Uh, but I'm going to call and boo. Maybe I'll just call. They'll be like, hello, Congressman Scarnetti's office. I'm like, boo. <laughs> but to, we have to put pressure on your officials. And this is the kind of stuff we want to do. So you, if, if you're not yeah. into like following it, like point for point, you can always find our social media stuff. You can find my social media stuff. Matt, do you post any stuff or do you just post like pictures of you um, like at like Bed Bath & Beyond and airplanes? For- yeah, from time, from time to t- a little bit of that, uh, but from from time to time uh, uh, on my Twitter feed, I'll post uh, some defense related articles that uh, that you may be interested in. So so tune in for that. And what would do you mind putting out your Twitter handle if those are on there? Oh, sure. Sure. It's Martin three one one six with the at symbol in front of it. Yeah. And you don't even have to be my friend on Facebook. Like you, my, all my stuff is public. You can just look me up and hit follow, or you can be my friend. Let's yeah. be friends, but uh, let's be friends. I'm not on Twitter that much. I'm actually a pretty bad tweeter. So, um, which is also what saves me from, from the commander in chief since I'm bad. Uh-huh. I don't get to see, I know I'm not subjected to that. Uh, well, anyway, yeah. that's about all the time we have. We ran a little long today, but I actually thought it was a really good conversation. Sure. I was really good to have it. Yeah. Uh, or glad. To yeah, have me it. too. So, uh, Matt, I'm going to get going. I got a lot of things to do today. I'm sure you do too, but I will see yeah. you over there. I'll see you over there as well, Terry, over and out. Over and out. We'll be over. We're coming over. And we won't 